Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Ao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hey, Ricky. Good to have you on board the show. You've been an interesting person who has been a very active founder in the Southeast Asia tech scene. You've been bootstrapping, which is a path that not many uh, Southeast Asians are taking, to be honest. So I think there's an interesting journey to feature. And you've also recently launched your own podcast. And so I'm happy to like, you know, dive into uh, your journey. Sounds good. So where do you want me to begin? Tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? And then we'll go into like your professional career along the way. So I'm actually Indonesian. So I see a lot of Indonesian here. Hi, guys. Nice seeing Indonesian uh, faces and names here on Clubhouse. I grew up in Medan, very conservative Chinese-Indonesian family. And the family is always you know, wanted uh, the kids. So I have three younger brothers. I'm the eldest. They always wanted us to kind of like, you know, study overseas, you know, make the family proud, you know, all those sort of Asian things that parents expect their kids, uh, you know, to achieve. And uh, when I was 14, I was lucky enough to move to Singapore and I studied there for about four years before I moved to Australia. And I have always had this dream of being an entrepreneur when I actually moved to Australia. I think a, a big part of it was uh, actually inspired by my parents. So my dad is a hustler. He, is, he works really hard. He runs a few companies when I was growing up. So seeing him always kind of like thinking about new ideas, you know, building his business has always been very inspirational for me. So that, has, that is something that's ingrained in me since I was a kid. So when I was in Australia doing my uni, I was already kind of like thinking of doing business. But I knew, I knew as well, I think deep down that I was, uh, I had like some, a lot of skills to pick up. I had a lot of things I want to learn. And I knew that, you know, there are a lot of things that I don't know how to do yet. So I was also trying to be very prudent in my way of approaching entrepreneurship uh, at that age. Having said that, I actually started a bar when I was in Melbourne with whatever money I scrounged up from working at Starbucks as a barista. It was, you can imagine, it was actually, it didn't go well, you know, like uh, this kid who's in university running a bar, but that was kind of my first venture. And then I graduated and then I started, I started working for a company, a research company. I always wanted to be a consultant, but you know what I got was a research analyst role, which was, for me, it was still exciting. And then uh, after about two, three years uh, working there, I decided that you know, Melbourne, Australia is a great place to live, but it's not the most exciting place for someone who wants to you know, experience new things, you know, uh, meet a lot of different people, look at how you know, different businesses are built. I feel like it's lacking some excitement there. So I moved to Singapore and joined a conglomerate. Actually, it's a Vietnamese conglomerate where I was helping them building their first uh, business in Myanmar. So I got a lot of exposure into like the Southeast Asian ecosystem and understanding how some of these like uh, you know conglomerates and like big rich families built their fortunes, which was kind of like a bit of an interesting insight for me as well. I went into consulting after that for three years. That is a company called BTS. That's where I learned a lot about leadership because we do a lot of uh, people leadership, people development kind of projects at BTS and I enjoyed my time thoroughly there. And I think after BTS, the, the itch of kind of like starting, and by the way, during this entire process, I've started like a bunch of like random things as well, but I'm not going to go into too much details because they, 
uh, they didn't go so well. And uh, we can talk a little bit about it, Jeremy, if you're interested. But yeah, I, I started a bunch of things uh, during this process. But yeah, I think after BTS, I think I felt that I really wanted to kind of like, I feel confident. I feel more confident. I really wanted to get back onto the entrepreneurship route. And I knew deep down during this entire time of me building my career that there's, there are a few things that I need as a person, you know, as an individual to really help me be successful as an entrepreneur, right? So I think on the back of my mind, one of the biggest things as, uh, you know, the eldest in the family as well, I feel like I do need to have a bit of financial stability for myself. And, you know, knowing that the journey of entrepreneurship is going to be you know, full of up and downs and, you know, you don't know what you're going to encounter, you don't know when you're going to need money. I wanted to make sure that as much as possible, I was able to weather my personal financial needs, at least for the next one, two to three years, right? So I actually saved quite a bit for that. And as a side note as well, I think as the eldest in the family, I think the reason why that was kind of important for me as well is because at that point, I think my brothers, my youngest brothers, I think was still in university and I was still helping them pay their tuition fee. So I think there is some sort of a burden there that I knew I needed to, you know, make sure I have in place before I can comfortably and confidently, you know, uh, take on a more risky, I guess, career uh, in my life, right? And then, yeah, that's when I started uh, Ravenry, which uh, was inspired by my first job uh, as a research analyst. We started the business as uh, an on-demand research platform that basically answers any questions for any businesses in 24 hours, right? So that was kind of like how we started and we've pivoted quite a bit. It's been two and a half years now. So right now we are focused more on building a network of vetted talents, mostly in the research and writing space right now and connecting this network to people that you know, need their service. So that's what we do now. Amazing. I mean, I love that you know, grad arc uh, of not just your story, obviously as a professional and founder, but of course as a very Southeast Asian, Southeast Asian, right? You know, kind of like, uh, you know, growing up in so many different countries and, you know, being able to access different markets is something that it's actually a common feature, I think, for so many Southeast Asians, right? You know, which is something that that global cosmopolitan point of view isn't really replicated in many other places as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, like it, Southeast Asia in itself, it's, 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 it's quite fragmented, right? There's so many different kinds of cultures, people, you know, like beliefs, uh, mindsets that you can find, you know, even within like my city in Medan, like I've seen so many different like families having a very different approach to, you know, like living their lives. So yeah, definitely. So Ricky, I'm just kind of curious, you know, what was it like growing up with, you know, a father who was, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, what was... What was inspiring about it? There's a few things. I think one is my, my dad was a bit of a workaholic. So when I was growing up, at least now he's, he's taking things a little bit more slowly, which is good. I think one thing that kind of like caught my attention when I was a kid was like how determined he is to, you know, like give us a good life. I think that was kind of like very inspiring. And I think it's not just my dad. I think my mom, like, you know, she's not, she wasn't an entrepreneur, but she was doing like a huge part. She was, uh, again, like, this is very, like, Indonesian, right? Like, we, like, you know, growing up, I go to, like, four tuitions, you know? Like, I, I, I take Chinese classes, of which knowledge I've given back to the teachers. I, I, I do guitar, I swim, like, I, I have math class outside of school, like, things like that, right? So my mom is always bringing, like, four kids in a giant van, driving us around with, like, food in the car, and making sure that we are well-fed and we are changed and we are clean from one tuition to the next tuition. She basically lived in a van, 
for like the most part of me growing up, right? So I think that was also kind of like a very like a left a big imprint. So my mom also like someone that I really, really, really look up to. But I think back to my dad, I think he actually, um, like I think a lot of Asians uh, in Southeast Asia, when they go through, uh, you know, especially my age, right? You, you live through 1997, which is a, the Asian financial crisis. My dad's business was hit really, really hard during this time. And I think at that point, I was about nine years old, eight years old. Yeah. And I think when I knew, I think uh, that my fam- family was in financial trouble. I was, as a kid, I didn't know anything, right? But my dad, I could see like my dad was pulling his hair, trying to figure out like what's the next thing he can do because his his first business did, you know, did not survive and trying to figure out, you know, how to make sure like, you know, he can make ends meet for us. I think that resilience, that, you know, active effort in, um, you know, trying to give us a better life was something that is truly inspiring for me. And he did it all for us. He didn't kind of like, you know, he, he didn't worry about being rich. He didn't want to kind of like get the fame or anything like that. He just wanted us to have a good life. And I think that was, uh, that was very uh, important for me. Yeah, no, that's so true. And, you know, one thing that's interesting about what you said as well, how everything is, you know, the Asian financial crisis, right? I mean, my dad was also in business and he got massively hit by Asian financial crisis and he was super stressed. And like you, as a kid, I had no idea what was going on. All I knew is that my dad was very frustrated. And then, and then suddenly he was very free, you know, and spending a lot of time at home, right? And you're like, wow, your dad's home all the time. That's new. Which is great, but then he's not very happy, right? You know, so you know. I have to say there was a a few like like really important moment in my childhood during this time that I recall until today. I don't think I even like told my brothers about this, but I recall like my mom having to open our personal safe at home and having to sell her jewelry just to pay our school fees. That was like you know there was that was like something that you know I'll never forget. Yeah. Oh wow! Thanks for sharing. I think. There's some similar dynamics as well, where, you know, we had to dip into our savings to basically like get, you know, I mean, it's crazy, right? Because I think there's so many Southeast Asians who tackle and face the same, you know, Asian financial crisis, right? I mean, it threw out the business people, it threw out the employees, and it was just a crazy, I don't know, macro shock that, you know, it's just like see it into the minds of like, you know, every, I don't know, executive today, I guess, in Southeast Asia, but also like our generation, right? Watching our parents deal with that nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I think obviously, you know, you learned a lot and, you know, you started being entrepreneurial. You know, I'd love to, you know, you know, talk about your first ever entrepreneurial experience, right? Or at least uh, officially was like setting up the bar, right? So tell us more about this bar that you set up in Australia. Like, what was the idea? What was your idea? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I- I'll rewind a few years back. It's not a business that I started, but. It was kind of like an entrepreneurial thing that I did when I was a kid. So I actually used to sell uh, just sketches to, well, this, is, this was me when I was in primary school. I, I, I consider this my very first entrepreneurial experience. So I used to trace, I get a trace paper and I'll trace like comic books and like, you know, all these Marvel characters, like, you know, the Japanese anime characters like Doraemon. I'll just trace them on the trace paper and I'll sell that trace paper to my friends for money. I remember so clearly when I was a kid, and I think this was when, this was the same time as well, Asian financial crisis. I think I was trying to like help my parents somehow, but we were like getting like, I was getting like five cents for every single piece of paper that I sold. And I, be, I was really conning all my friends to buying like this piece of paper that I traced from a comic book that I didn't even own. I think I went to a bookshop and I just traced like a bunch of like characters, uh, you know, on uh, comic books and I tried to make money out of it. So that was, I would say like one of the first things that I did that I still remember until today to make money, right? 
I think my first my first official job was also quite interesting. I was actually in Singapore. I was 16, I think. I wasn't sure if it was legal, but I was actually hired to be a salesperson for a company that sells air purifier door-to-door. So I wasn't paid a dime. I was working there for three months. I wasn't paid a dime. And I had to carry an actual air purifier. It was like four or five kilo, walk down every single door along Holland Village in Singapore, knock on the door and try to sell a random person an air purifier. So that was kind of like one of my, again, like it's not a business, but I feel like it was a very important entrepreneurial, like uh, self-building, self-development moment for me, right? It was kind of like dealing with rejections. It was thinking, talking about like, you know, how to, you know, pitch yourself, how to appeal to people, how to have a thick skin, all those, those stuff, right? And the three months, I only sold literally one air purifier. And remember, I, only, I was only paid like $500 as a commission for that, but it was kind of like something that again, like left, a very big, uh, like it, it was kind of a huge learning moment for me uh, as an entrepreneur now. Now back to the bar question. So in Melbourne, obviously like, I think Melbourne is a huge like, you know, F&B city, like people there are very creative with what they do. And so uh, young Ricky was just in over his head thinking that, oh yeah, we're gonna like, you know, beat all of these bars. We're gonna make the coolest bar ever. So I actually started the business with two other friends uh, and I knew them from like one of the partners, I didn't even know her. She was like a friend's friend. And I was like, you know what? Let's just give it a go and let's just try this. And the reason for me kind of like going into this was because I thought to myself, if I truly want to be an entrepreneur, I have to start taking small risk. And at that point, I think we didn't have to put in too much money to build the bar and to kind of like start it up. It was, we just buying a bar from someone else and we just kind of like fixing it up and trying to run it. So that's what we did. We just put a bit of money. I thought, you know, like it's a money that I'm, are able to lose. Um, and it, again, like it was some money that I scrounged up from like my days working as a barista at Starbucks over the weekend and in the evenings after my uni classes. And yeah, like the it didn't go well mainly because we didn't know how to market, we didn't know how to differentiate ourselves, and we didn't know how to, you know, like basically run a business, right? So uh, one of the things that was super challenging for me during that time was managing my partner, this partner that I didn't know, who was giving out free drinks to all of her friends. And well, I mean, I was guilty a bit to, it, to, to that point as well because I was giving some free drinks to my friend as well. You know, like as a bar owner, you're like a uni kid, like, you know, this is Australia. People just, you know, go there and have fun. Even like all the foreign students go there and like they, they'll, they'll go out and drink, right? And, you know, enjoy their time, right? So, and we're all students, like that's our clientele. And like, we cannot charge a lot for our drinks. And now we're giving away free drinks, right? So yeah, it did not end very well after that. I think uh, I exited after about six months, seven months. Luckily, I didn't lose too much money, so I got my capital back. But I remember uh, the partner that I didn't know, she kept running the business. And uh, yeah, eventually, yeah, they had to file for bankruptcy as well. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was, that was my very first official venture. Wow. That was, uh, Ricky, I, I, we need to have catch dinner again uh, sometime because I want to go deeper into... Uh, like what you're tracing superheroes for five cents. I mean, I gotta say that was a pretty good deal, actually. I mean, I think for both sides, actually, right? I mean, you get five cents, yeah. Yeah, this was 1997, right? So, like, that was a lot of money for a kid in Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Five cents is a it's a good price. I gotta say, you could do quite a bit with it. You know, amazing. I just love the idea, and then. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I want to see that made into a movie where you trace. You know, it's like you know, the movie of Ricky Valiant, right? It was like it was like you know, you know. Obviously, the first scene is you. I don't know, 
uh, on your deathbed, you know, saying like Rosebud, and then and then your the next image is you tracing, you know, uh, you know, flashback, <laughs> a flashback, a huge flashback of me with my my tracing paper, <laughs> conning conning my conning my secondary uh, my junior like you know primary school friends. <laughs> No lah, it wasn't. It wasn't conning. I mean, it's a fair transaction. Five cents is a fair transaction. Yeah, I create value for them. <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's value creation right there. And then, uh, yeah, no, I loved it. you know also what you shared about you know kind of like growing up, your air purifier story. You know, that's amazing as well. For <laughs> well, it's a good workout, I guess. Too. Did you have to carry it door to door? Yeah, I had no money to buy to buy to kind of like even get taxis. Man, I was sixteen. So you walk up to the door and you were carrying an air purifier on your back. Yes, it was. A, so the air purifier is okay. You've watched uh, that that movie, but with Will Smith, right? Pursuit of Happiness, where he's carrying this copier machine. It's literally that. That was me, but I wasn't like suited up. I was like this kid in his like shorts and trying to sell air purifier. Like I don't even know what it does. I don't even know why people need air purifier. I was just like trying to like you know learn how to sell, right? So I literally had to kind of like carry that thing like for hours every day just to get my first customer. That was what I did. Yeah. Okay. You got to tell me who was that first customer? Like your first and only customer who bought your one air purifier across three months that gave you 500 bucks. You got to tell, do you remember this person, the face? The, the... She gave me $5,000. The commission was 500 bucks. Right. And like, okay. So she was, uh, I remember, I remember again, that my very first conversation when I closed that deal, I was so happy. I don't know what it was exactly, but it was uh, one of the shop houses, like, you know, that I walked to and it's actually an office. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a house. So I just went into the office and I was like, oh, like, can I speak to, you know, like uh, the manager? And like this lady came out, uh, I can't remember her name now, but she actually runs, uh, it was a design agency. And what they do, I think they do interior design stuff. And I was just pitching her like really hard on this, like, why you need like, you know, air purifier because like the air you breathe is like, you know, like 90% of like, you know, the reason why you're healthy or unhealthy, right? Things like that, you know, like basically what I was given as a script to sell this thing, right? It was like some, I, I don't know if it even works. It was like some air ionizing like technology that's meant to kind of like create positive charge and take all the free radicals from your body as you breathe the air. Anyway, she was really, really nice. She was like, look, Ricky, like, I don't think I need this. But like, you know, you've been talking for like an hour and you're not letting me go back to work. I'll take a chance, but promise me one thing, right? That you are going to um, come back and, you know, you're going to leave your number. And if there's anything wrong with this product and if there is anything that I'm unhappy with, you're going to come back and you're going to help me sort it out. And if I'm not happy with this, you're going to give me a refund, right? So I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And remember, I was a kid who knew that I was going to only do this for like two or three months. But I was like so keen on closing that deal. I said, like, yeah, 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 yeah. We're definitely going to like, you know, do that and support you and make sure that you have all the, like, if you don't, you're not happy with it, you have like that risk-free, you know, element, the, the, the money back guarantee, you know, I'll take care of that for you, right? And that's how I closed my first deal. She, she agreed, she's happy with it. And she actually never called me after that. She was just, I think she's happy with it. So yeah, that was the end of it. Yeah. I want to know who she is and interview her and see if she remembers you. <laughs> why why did she buy this thing from this random kid right you'll be like why did you decide to trust five thousand dollars <laughs> yeah it was five thousand dollars man like it was 2006 i think oh my goodness that was a lot of money that's a lot of money for an air purifier yeah this is absolutely insane well i'm so glad that she took the bet on you and you know, i don't know kickstarted one of me made it 
you know, $5,000 to uh, buy an air purifier and transform a kid's life. That's not too bad, if you put it that way. Maybe she was in her heart, she was like feeling, you know, she, she took pity on you and she was like, yeah. I would attribute it more to my salesman's, salesman skills, but you know what? Fine, I'll take that as well, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Clearly, you were such an excellent salesperson. You're all like, you were at the peak of your sales game and you never plateaued. You've never plateaued. It's, you're just as good as you were. Uh, exactly. <laughs> it just keeps getting better from there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and then, you know, talking about the bar, right? You know, like, yeah, you know, like, you, you know, the bar one is an interesting story, right? Because I think, you know, first one, obviously, you, you know, you're, you're selling one thing. Then your second one, you're selling for someone else. And the third one is where you, you know, became like a co-owner, right? What's it like? I mean, you know, was that an interesting transition? Like when you walked into, tell, actually, no, tell, tell me when you first walked into that building, the, bar, the room, right? It wasn't transformed yet and everything. What was your perception of the place? Well, man, like that room, that building was, it was, now that I'm looking back and thinking back, it was terrible. I don't know what I was thinking. It was run down, like everything was broken. It was so dirty. And we didn't know like the first thing about running an F&B business, right? Well, my partner does. In, in Melbourne, he does kind of like, uh, he, he was a chef, I think at that point. So he knew like how to kind of like, you know, make sure that you, you, you meet all the requirements, you know, the, you get all the licenses, food and beverage licenses, stuff like that. So he knew how to do that, but I didn't know anything, right? And just kind of like in for the ride and he was like taking care of everything. So I think when the first time we went in, it was like, it was just run down. Like we had to fix everything manually, like one by one, the three of us. Every, I think every weekend I'll be there like trying to, you know, patch the floor, trying to like clean the um and the kitchen was like disgusting the bar was disgusting the fridge was oh my god like it was just horrible right so i was just kind of like doing a lot of those things and you know as a uni kid again we didn't have a lot of capital to do reno so renovations so i i literally just kind of like you know put up like you know posters that i print out on like my like you know my my home printer as like the menu and we were like you know using word like you know and designing random stuff and putting it up as like a sign saying that we're open like it was just everything was just kind of like a mishmash of like sc- like scrawly handwriting on a piece of paper or like a really cheaply printed like flyer right that's what like that was literally the first day of that company that, that business that bar is called little peninsula it's gone now but it's called little peninsula yeah wow i can't imagine that happening in so you were patching and you're you know renovating the place by hand putting on the flyers so tell us, tell us about your first day of the, of the bar. Okay, so this is the other thing that is definitely a mistake. And I would highly recommend anyone who's listening who wants to be an entrepreneur not do, which is I left everything to my partner to do, right? So I did not even like, I, I think I ran a few shifts there as a bartender. I was a terrible bartender, but I was, I was running a few shifts. Again, like because I give free drinks and stuff, people like it. But like from a business perspective, it was terrible. But like... I think uh, I remember like doing like, you know, running the business and we hired a few like uh, waiters and bartenders. I remember thinking like these people are actually earning much more than like what I'm making. And like I had to pay. And this is Australia, right? So I think we were paying them like $21 every hour for the work they do. And I, I was paying myself zero. We were like in the red in the first few months, right? So we didn't make any money. So I, was, I remember thinking, shit, what did I get myself into? Every single hour I work at Starbucks. And by the way, when I was working at Starbucks, I was making like $15, $16, right? So they, these people I'm hiring are making more money than me. And like, that was something that I remember. I was like, shit, like, did I make a mistake? Did it, does this make sense? You know, I better make this work, right? So that cro- crossed my mind so many times. And 
I think the first, I remember the first three or four months of us building that business, we didn't have like any customers, man. Like we did not have anyone coming. No one knows who we are. I have to drag my friends. My partners have to drag their friends and like, you know, people from uni, whoever that wants a drink, we just tell them, we're going to give you free drink. Just come and like, you know, at least, you know, enjoy the one free drink and see, and we're kind of like crossing our fingers thinking like, okay, maybe they'll buy like the next drink, you know? And that was kind of like the, the early days. What was it again? There was a couple of like quite interesting things that happened in that bar. We had a lot of, you know, arguments within the partners about like how we want to run the business. So I think because it was a bar business, but it's kind of like a very nicely located building. It was actually in the, right in the middle of the CBD of Melbourne. We were thinking of like turning it into like a cafe in the middle of the day. So like I was actually like running a few shifts as well as waiters during that, that time, just kind of like serving like random stuff. Like my, my, my friend would cook like, like Indonesian, like dawn with like fried chicken on top. It's just like completely random, like menu that like doesn't sit together with the concept of Little Peninsula and and the place being a bar. Like just a mess, man. Like it was, oh man, like I don't know, like I don't know what we were doing, honestly. Like it was just, it was just insane. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And no, I think that's interesting, right? Because those seem to be like three very formative experiences, you know, obviously being part of a business and running a business. It's kind of curious. So, and you've obviously each time around, you've also been clear to articulate what you learned from each stage, right? Yeah. I'm just kind of curious. So after that, that's when you, after that's when you started joining your professional career, right? Tell us more about, you know, like your, your jobs, I guess, in essence. Yeah. So the first job, I guess, professional job that I got was with this company called Ibis World in Australia. I was a research analyst and I got a job through a friend. Again, like uh, in Australia, it was really hard for a new grad at that point to kind of like find a new job. And um, I was actually not very smart as well because I studied like finance and economics. And those are the things that will not give you a PR in Australia. And if you don't have a PR in Australia, it's almost impossible to get a job, right? So I had to kind of like rely on curry favors with some friends. And uh, yeah, I got that job. Uh, that was, I think, a super interesting job because it was a $100 million business and they literally only had 60 people working. So revenue per employee was insanely high, right? And at the same time, I remember my first paycheck was, I think it was $28,000 a year. So it's like $2,000 plus uh, after taxes, you know, every single month. And in Australia, that is like, I make more money being a barista, you know? So like, that was like nothing. But what I realized was that they were not very worried. The, the managers, the CEOs, they're not worried about like hiring all these undergrads, you know, uh, young professionals who basically, you know, cost really cheap, cost really low to hire. And like their business model is about, you know, getting all this research done very, very quickly, write it in a very nice template, present it in a very, in, in, with like, you know, really nice graph and illustrations and sell it for like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So like the accounts will be with like the bank uh, in Australia, like Commonwealth Bank or NAB or ANZ. And th these banks will pay IBIS World like hundreds of thousands of dollars to access the reports that is written by a bunch of undergrad, right? So out of the 60 people that's working full-time for them, I think there was only like 20 analysts. And then I think the, uh, there was like 10 ops people and there were 10 sales people. Like it was just like analysts who just got out of uni, who's producing all this forecast about an industry, who's talking about who are the competitors that you should look out for, who's talking about challenges and opportunities in like, you know, the construction industry. Like we know nothing. We just read everything online and we were calling people up from like, you know, these companies asking them like, oh, like what are some of the, 
you know, like what, what's your, what's your revenue this year? You know, how much money are you making? Like, we're trying to kind of like put the picture of this industry together, but we're just a bunch of really young kids who have no experience doing that. And I think that at that point, what I realized was it was a good business model, right? And I think I kept thinking uh, as an entrepreneur, right? I was thinking like, oh, I need to build a business that has to grow the people, you know, like has to be, you know, has to be very fancy. You have to have like amazing engineers that, you know, like can go on and work for Google, things like that. But I think IBISWorld taught me that there are a lot of different ways you can run a business. And I think they're not caught up with like trying to make it like the best place to work. They just focus on making it a profitable and a growing business. And it worked really well. And, you know, like, look, all these undergrads that's working there, they only work for like one or two years, right? They don't care about retention because to them, like, there's a lot more undergrad who needs jobs that pays $2,000 a month. So if you want to leave, feel free to leave. They've got all the systems set up. So there's no one who's becoming like, who's going to become like, um, like a knowledge hog who knows like how to run the entire business. And when they leave, you know, become uh, irreplaceable, right? Like there's no one person that is kind of like, you know, uh, like a bottleneck in that sense. Yeah, they, they just kind of like, you know, go through like undergrad students, like, you know, every single month, right? They don't care. Uh, and that's their business model. And they're, they're very, they embrace it. They accept it as their business. And I think that's kind of like one of the things that I realized is a way to build a business. You don't have to build a business that, you know, retain people for 20 years, 30 years um, and kind of like build, help them build a full career out of it. So that was how well. Tell us more about Ravenry and what you're building today and how you got started. We started Ravenry uh, on the back of the idea that we want to build a knowledge work platform that is on demand and flexible. I think it was about four years ago when we started and we had this idea looking at Grab, looking at Gojek, you know, allowing people to kind of like make a living, you know, driving and, you know, um, basically kind of like become a ride hail, uh, well, a ride hailing uh, driver, right? And we thought, why not empower people to do things that are like more knowledge-based? There's a lot of people in Singapore and in Southeast Asia who are really smart, right? who kind of like are engineers, who are like, you know, analysts, and who's able to kind of like provide like a lot of this uh, knowledge services online. So why not kind of like make that more accessible to people? So that's kind of like the uh, initial idea for Ravenry. When we started, we, um, we thought that it'd be nice to kind of like make money right away. So I remember like my first revenue, we actually sent email to a bunch of my friends in like different VCs and different companies and just say, hey, if you uh, pay me $100, I will give you I'll answer any questions you have about your business, about a market. I'll do some research for you in 24 hours, right? So that's kind of like how we made our first $100. I think it was one month into the idea, basically, just to test it out and see how it works. And I think from there, uh, initially, we thought, okay, we need to raise funds for this, right? Because, okay, like a lot of people are interested in it. There is uh, some traction. We have a lot of people who's kind of like coming back to us. And so we tried to kind of like raise funds. And uh, I think we got turned down a lot. I think it was kind of like a one-year journey of us just trying because we thought that, oh, this, is, this must be the way to go, right? Like everyone's kind of like raising funds. You read like, you know, any tech media in Singapore and globally, it's all about like who's close what round, right? And at what, like how many millions, right? So we thought that's the way to go. I think after one year, we thought, we, we kind of like realized that a lot of the investors were interested, but they always tried to kind of like get us to change something, get us to, you know, change our valuation, ask us why we are doing this, what's the purpose of this, is there a market for this? There's a lot of this stakeholder management thing that we have to do that we didn't actually set out to do when we started this business. We really wanted to just build a product that works for, you know, like the knowledge, um, you know, ecosystem, knowledge work ecosystem, right? So we thought, why not just bootstrap it? We have revenue anyway. We're making enough money to cover like our expenses. Uh, we, at that point, we had like three full-timers working for us. 
And we're able to kind of like, you know, be profitable even with uh, just us bootstrapping and not like taking an external capital. So we're actually completely fine, right? And I think as, as I mentioned, uh, that's kind of like how a lot of uh, people started their, you know, that's, that's kind of like how a lot of people build their business, right? Like their business are profitable. A lot of these SMEs are doing really well. They're fine. They don't need any like, you know, capital injection and they're doing just fine. So we thought, okay, why don't we just bootstrap it? And that's kind of like how uh, we got to this point uh, three and a half years later. Awesome. So what's interesting is your brutal honesty about the fact that you actually did try to seek VC funding and then you ended up bootstrapping the business. So, you know, firstly, most founders who bootstrap, you know, sometimes it's a bit of aura, which is we intellectually chose bootstrapping first and we never went to do VC funding. And I think the converse is also true. I think a lot of people who you know, go for VC funding never really talk about bootstrapping or never really thought of bootstrapping as an option. So I think that's a good thing about it. What has your experience been of bootstrapping so far versus you know, what you see of VC funding now that you're you know, some years into it? For me, I think bootstrapping is just another way of building a business, right? Uh, I, I, never kinda like, I would never say to anyone, do not actually seek external funding, do not talk to VCs. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that to uh, you know, people as kind of like a, a blanket rule. I think for me, bootstrapping is just a great way for me to retain a lot of my uh, freedom, a lot of my, I guess, genuine vision of what I want to do with the business. And it gives me a lot more, um, I guess, time to focus on what I really love to do, which is why I started my own business, right? Which is product building. I want to create impact to all this, you know, freelance knowledge workers. Uh, I want to build a team. I enjoy that a lot. I want to spend more time doing that. And when I look at, you know, uh, my friends who kind of like are going through a lot of these VC funding rounds, I think this is something that they kind of like, they knew they're going to get themselves into. So they were prepared mentally, but it does take a toll, right? It takes them easily like three to six months to close around. And that is essentially six to three to six months of them not like doing what they set out to do in the first place, not doing what they actually love doing, right? So for me, it was a trade-off that I was willing to make not having so much capital to be able to pour into this engine and you know skyrocket the growth but instead i get some time to actually build what i love and actually do things that matter to me what would you say are the downsides of uh bootstrapping it's it's definitely challenging i don't think it's uh i don't think it's i mean like just generally entrepreneurship is just challenging right but i think bootstrapping kind of like puts you into that mindset of constraint a lot of time right like the biggest challenge for us is always like knowing how exactly we want to like use whatever is left like you know at the end of the month right in our in our bank account right so thinking about like very carefully okay do we hire with this money is it better if we put it in marketing is it better if we you know like build a new team in a different country you know a lot of that decision becomes more and more important it cannot be like you know decided frivolous frivolously because uh, that's all we have right I think that's kind of like the, one of the biggest challenges. I think as a founder, I think the other challenge that I face very early on is just a sense of envy looking at like all these really well-funded startups, you know, either like our, our direct competitor or just like startups in any other domain and even like our own friends, right? Just looking at them and, see, and seeing how like, oh, like it's so nice they're able to hire like the top developers in Singapore. It's so nice they're able to kind of like get like this swanky office and give like their uh, employees all the nicest, you know, MacBook Pros, you know. And that is something that I always feel very challenging, I think personally to deal with because I always want to do what's best for my employee, right? I think that's kind of like one of the most important things for me. And it's always hard to kind of like tell them that, hey guys, like this is what we made at the end of the month. And like, I know you guys are looking for a raise. I know like we need this new laptop, that new, you know, desk 
for whatever reason, right? But can we wait for another two months? And that's kind of like one of the most challenging things that I feel like we have to sacrifice as a team. Yeah. I think the envy is real, right? For any business, which is 99% of businesses are real businesses that are not VC funded. And the envy is real because, you know, the media, like you said, is showing them off. And we have so many friends and peers who are not only founders, but also are employees and operators within those companies, right? Have you ever had founders ever say they envy you bootstrapping the business? Not really, not many actually. <laughs> I think a lot of people probably uh, say will say things like, "Wow, I didn't know how you how I don't know how you are able to do this. I don't know how you're able to have like ten full timers, eleven full timers, you know, like and not raise an EVC round, and you are building a tech product." You know, I think a lot of people kind of like express that. I don't think anyone's come to me and say, "I wish I was, I was you." <laughs> so that's something that I have yet to hear. So we'll see. Yeah, the truth is, you know, no one is envious of you as long as the fundraising train keeps going, right? It's when it stops. And I think that's when founders are going to be like, whoa, I wish I had bootstrapped that, etc. In fact, I actually just recently wrote off a call of another founder who was very explicitly bootstrapping because his first uh, company had failed to scale with the VC capital infusion, right? And in retrospect, it was not the right time and the right place to do that. And attempt a hockey stick growth path. I do have to say, I think there are times when I'm really grateful to have bootstrapped, uh, especially last year during COVID. I think a lot of people are very reliant on you know external funding. They're burning a lot of cash before um, you know COVID hit, and I think when COVID hit, all the demand's gone, right? So all of a sudden, like they just have to pay all these expenses without seeing any upside. A lot of the VC are very cautious in terms of pouring money into these companies. Uh, they are not able to show like that growth, that traction during this period. And that hurt them a lot. And a lot of them actually went out of business because they were too reliant on a lot of these uh, you know, VC funds. Having said that, there are also obviously some that has like a really nice uh, you know, treasure chest, right? That allows them to go through that you know, without having to worry too much, without even like sweating a beat. I think, but, but for me, I was really grateful that we had like a profitable business. We had enough cash reserve to be able to weather through like, um, you know, Completely like, you know, unexpected, you know, situation like that and not having to even ask anyone to basically bail us out, right? I think that was kind of like a really nice feeling knowing that, you know, we were able to do that ourselves. And also like there's this sense of confidence that a lot of the money that we get are from customers, right? And oftentimes I think, you know, that is the best kind of money because that shows that your product is working. That shows that, you know, people are, uh, you know, seeing value, getting value from your product. And I think there is no, essentially, there's no strings attached, right? Because all you need to do is that you, it's a very clear promise, right? You promise that you're going to deliver this value and you do that and you get money in return, right? There's no like, oh, like if for the next round of, you know, fundraising, you got to do this for me. Uh, you got to put a board member. You got to let me make decision now. Like there's no such thing, which kind of like is something that I really enjoy. Yeah, Ricky, that's a really undervalued part about bootstrapping is your ability to weather the ups and in a much more flat way. So a lot of, equanimity <laughs> in the you know entire process versus the roller coaster that founders normally have right which is they have to push for a very positive case on the business fundamentals and they also have to stack a very and push for a very positive probability of the fundraise associated with those fundamentals those two things are roughly correlated as long as you're building a good business there should be some funding but it's not a perfect correlation and i think that's a lot of stress so I think you get to sleep a little bit better at night, you know, especially at times when those two uh, 
probabilities and outcomes are becoming less correlated, for example, in the crisis of COVID. When you think about the piece about fundraising and bootstrapping, what advice do you give to people who are come up to you and say, hey, I'm interested in bootstrapping my next company? Okay, that's, this is a tough one. I think for me, fundamentally business building, if you are to build a real business, in my opinion, I think you want to focus on both the top line and the bottom line, right? So I think for me, bootstrapping is not something that should just be for bootstrappers. It should be something for everyone. All entrepreneurs should understand like the like the 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 basic fundamental of like you know creating value using a corporation in a business, right? So I wouldn't say that this is specific to any bootstrapper, but I would say I think um, I think one of the things that I learned as a uh, someone who haven't really got a lot of capital injection is to kind of like see constraint as uh, a way to kind of be creative and come up with interesting solutions. With Ravenry, for example, I think we've gone through so many different uh, iterations of our business. Partly is because we kind of like figured out like there's no product market fit for you know certain versions of the product. I think the other reason is also we need to make money, right? And I think the 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 nice thing about like focusing on you know like thinking very quickly about how we can make money and how we can actually have like profit at the end of the month to pay everyone, right? Is you actually are thinking very hard how you can generate value right away for your company. I think a lot of uh, startups that I see nowadays are very focused on like getting users, getting traction, but that do not necessarily translate to you know, a good business model right away. And I think thinking about your business model really, really early on is very important, especially if you're a bootstrapper. And sometimes I think do not be, do not kind of like be daunted by the fact that sometimes you have to go through, you have to build business that is very manual, maybe like a service business, maybe a consulting business, right? As part of your way to fund your, uh, your project, your idea, right? I think you do not kind of like look at that as uh, a weakness or as a disadvantage. I actually see that as a strength because usually that kind of project allows you to really have like a much deeper relationship with the customer really get down and dirty into like, you know, what problems they face because you are like, you know, providing them a service, right? So you know exactly like, oh, this is their, this is the biggest pain point they go through. This is their user journey, right? This is the kind of things they have to deal with. This is this, this, these are their challenges, right? And from there, oftentimes, like we get so many new insights that really, really help us in building our product, right? So uh, that's the other thing that I would advise. Don't be, don't shy away from providing services and, you know, doing things that seems manual and not scalable. Uh, embrace it and really use that as a way to get new insights about your customers. You're reminding me about how VC founder startups find the medium term easy in terms of spending and getting growth through a certain set of dimensions like users, yet can find themselves with a you know range of positive to failure outcomes in the long term. Long term being you know a year to 24 months. And, you know, you have to go through as a bootstrapper, really a lot of short-term pain uh, on the top line and the bottom line perspective. And then you kind of have a much clearer outcomes, uh, more straightforward set of outcomes from the medium term to long term. What resources would you recommend for people who are thinking about bootstrapping? So other than listening to this podcast uh, with you sharing advice. Yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, companies out there that's kind of like doing great as company that bootstrap. I wouldn't really kind of like say TopTel is like the, the go-to example because they've done 
you know, they did some like really questionable things to their early stage angel investors, but they've kind of like done really well in terms of being able to build a business that is like, I think a few hundred million dollars revenue a year. So that's kind of like an amazing uh, company case study to look at. If you look at Basecamp, I think uh, the founder, Jason Fried and DHH, both of them are always posting a lot of resources, whether through their blog or on Twitter. They publish a few books as well on how they've done it. Again, like they started as an agency business and then they kind of like built a product out of it. And now today, 50 people, remote, remote team, I think like a few, like I think like tens of millions of dollars in revenue and are doing really well. So look at like, I think look at this, uh, some of these founders as I think a source of inspiration and also learning because they are usually very open in, you know, in terms of sharing their experience. I also uh, follow this uh, company called Earnest Capital. It's actually, it's actually a VC fund, if you will, but they are focusing on slow and calm companies, right? So they, they, their belief is that they, they are basically trying to encourage more companies to focus on building a business that is uh, sustainable in the long term, financially, uh, environmentally, et cetera, right? So I think they also have a lot of uh, best practices. They publish a lot of uh, you know, blog posts about how the founder in their portfolio companies have done it and have been really, really successful. Yeah, and I think, uh, take a look at them. They also run a, a few events. They have a really amazing Slack group that I'm part of. So these are just some of the resources that I use on a day-to-day -day basis. That reminded me about you know, Sahil and Gumroad. Uh, and do you remember the story about how they used to be a VC startup and then they slashed their way all the way back to being bootstrapped? And then this year, recently, I think a month ago, they raised a ton of money via crowdfunding. I think what five million dollars, uh, you know, which is you know a form of capital that acts quasi like angel slash you know VC capital. So it's interesting because you're reminding me about how it's also a two way street, right? Well, I think it's easier to go for bootstrapped. There's lots of companies that bootstrap and then eventually raise VC funding. It's pretty hard to do it other way around. It's very hard to be on a VC trajectory and slashing away down to a, a bootstrap set of outcomes. I don't know how you're able to buy out all your investors <laughs> at that stage, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, I think it's because your, your investors, you know, abandon you <laughs> so, for a lot of them, right? So, so, so it's not as if you're like cutting them loose. It's like they cut you loose anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a different situation, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a, I think like there's also another resource that I forgot to mention, which is Indie Hacker. I think there's a lot of like uh, quote unquote maker creators there that are trying to just get like, you know, the, like the first year of their business, they're just trying to get to like, like 5k MRR. And like, if we go to like Indie Hacker, you'll see like the crazy things they do to get to 5k MRR. And I think a lot of it is super inspiring. So uh, yeah, definitely take a look at that if you want to bootstrap. It feels like there's, you know, a lot of people talking about bootstrapping over the past, you know, one year. Do you feel like it's overhyped? <laughs> or do you feel like it needs to be hyped up more for bootstrapping? I think it's really very underrepresented, right, in the media. Like, no one talks about this. And that's kind of like, for me, is the annoying part because I did not know this option was available. I mean, like, it's so strange, right? Because, like, all the businesses I know since I was growing up are basically profitable businesses, right? They're not really VC-funded. Like, my dad has his own business. It wasn't VC-funded and he was doing fine, right? So, like, it's so funny that we never think about them as a viable way to build a business and a startup, right? I think whenever people associate tech and startup and put that together, it almost always means you need VC funding, which I am I, I'm starting to think, now that I'm, and I've been doing this for like three years plus, I'm starting to think that 
it's highly viable to use, you know, bootstrapping as a way to, to do that. So I'm all for hyping this up even more. And I think uh, the only way this can happen is if the bootstrappers actually talk about it, right? The difference is like a lot of these media companies and a lot of these like VC funded startups, obviously they want to make the media because they want to tell like, it's a signaling tool, right? They want to tell like all the other VCs that, hey, look, like we just got $2 million. You missed out on this, right? Like get ready for the next round, right? I think there is a lot of like that, that kind of like, makes the media so saturated with like fun- funding news. Whereas bootstrappers don't do that. They're a lot more realistic with how they use their money, right? So they're a lot more like, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're just more focused on building their business. So they don't really like market themselves as much, talk about their process as much, right? So yeah, so I wish that there's a lot more bootstrappers that are talking about it and just, you know, make it like a, a very good option, right? Make it an available option for all the other startup founders who's kind of like starting on their journey and, you know, show them that there's a way to do it without having you to start your journey with fundraising. You can do that. You can always do that later, right? But you don't have to start your first three to six months pitching ideas, right? Instead, you can just focus on building it and getting that product market fit early. Awesome. I agree. We need to hype up bootstrapping again, which is the normal unprocessed food diet of the startup building. Last question here is, where were you 10 years ago? And what advice would you go back to give to yourself? if you were traveling back in time? 10 years ago, that was, okay, 2011. What was I doing? I was in university starting up, you know, my first job. I would actually get myself to experiment with things a lot more. I think I was too scared um, to try new things, to uh, make a mistake, to fail, right? I think, uh, especially like out of uni and at that time, time I was in Australia. So I was so focused on trying to kind of like get a job that will give me a PR in Australia. In the end, I didn't even get a PR. And I actually, like, after a few years, I thought that Australia like wasn't, um, you know, some a, a place that will support like what I want to do. So I thought like, actually it, it works out fine anyway. But I was like so focused on like just succeeding and not making any mistakes what what happened was I think I missed out on a lot of like really interesting opportunities that I could have learned a lot from. And yeah, definitely like I would I would have told myself to just experiment more, don't be afraid about failure and yeah, just kinda like, you know, do more fun things that I care about rather than like what the conventional success definition is. Awesome. So true. Thanks so much, Ricky. Thanks, Jeremy.